as a, as a pastor, you have a hook at the very beginning to get everyone's attention. But sometimes there's a verse that is a hook in itself. It's so stark and powerful that when you read it, it just grabs your attention. And verse 17 is a verse like that. It's a hook in itself. Because it says, and if children, then heirs. So if you have the Spirit, Paul's been talking about the Spirit. If you have it, then you're a child of God and you have an inheritance before you. But then he says, and this is the hook, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So as I know many of you know, Romans 8 starts off with that famous verse that there's no longer any condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And he says, we know that by those who have the Spirit, and they have an inheritance before them. And then he, comma, provided you also suffer with him, so that you would be glorified with him. What does Paul mean by that? Now, we know he's not giving a condition. You know, he's not saying, there's no condemnation for you, well, unless you fail at the suffering. You know, it's like he's not doing that. What he is doing is describing someone who does have the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, you will suffer. And if you have the Spirit, you will also be glorified. They go together every time. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by this. Jesus said things very similar. He said that if you're ashamed of me and my words, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, so I will be ashamed of you. The same thing. It's like the proof is in the pudding of what do you think about what Jesus said and who he is? Now, this isn't controversial for many people in the world. Because for many people in the world, to become a Christian is your death sentence. To become a Christian means to be persecuted in a lot of real and tangible ways. And by the grace of God, we're not currently in that place. But times seem to be changing. The tide seems to be going out. There's a public thinker, his name is Aaron Wren, who says that now in America, we're, we've gone into a time where we're in the negative world. Before, to say you're a Christian was a positive good. In fact, you couldn't really be a politician unless you said you're a Christian. And then it was neutral. We just are one of the options on the table. And now we've moved to a time, and I think he's right, at least in some areas of the United States, where to say you're a Christian or to say that you believe what Christians have believed all along is to be a negative thing. So to believe what the Bible teaches about marriage will be a negative thing for you and your business or whatever you, you stand for. To say what the Bible teaches about gender or about the exclusivity of Christ, how Christ is the only one the Father, all of these things that Christians have believed for 2,000 years, now to stand on them will give you pushback, will bring suffering. So how do we prepare ourselves for suffering? Not just persecution, but all forms of suffering. How do we prepare ourselves? Well, Paul gives the answer in verse 18. And what it is, what the answer is, is what I'm going to call soul mathematics. Soul mathematics. This is what he says. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The word in Greek, that is translated consider, means to do mathematical equations, to count 
to do math, basically. <laughs> As they, she said earlier, some of us are afraid. Some of us are afraid of math. But that's what Paul is asking us to do, is consider. Do the equation. Compare. So if you look at the glories that Christ has before us, and you compare them to the present suffering, every Christian who has the Spirit should conclude, you know, it's not even close. It's just not even close. So going through this right now, it's nothing compared to the glory that is ahead. It's nothing. Yeah, I have a, a funny example, and it's kind of embarrassing for me. Um, so in high school, I went to a small high school. And in a small high school, basically, you have to do all the activities or nothing functions. I don't know if anybody went to a high school like that. And one of the activities that I was in, and this is... I feel like I'm confessing. <laughs> it's like, um, it was show choir. Does anyone know what show choir is? Okay, let me just embarrassingly explain to you if you don't know. It, basically, it's a choir. You're singing, but you're also dancing. And you're not only dancing, but you have to like wear ridiculous costumes, you know, like glitter and really flamboyant colors. And those three things, wearing glitter, flamboyant colors, singing and dancing in front of people, I do not like any of those things. Okay, so why did I do show choir? And for my teenage boy answer, it's pretty obvious. Girls, that's why I did <laughs> show choir. So there are times I'm like doing jazz hands, and I'm thinking, what am I doing with my life? You know, it's like, what is this? And it's like, well, I considered the suffering of the glitter vest worth meeting some of the girls in my high school and spending more time with them. It was worth the cost in my mind. Or this morning when you, eat, when you eat breakfast, I don't know if you guys have refreshments after you have refreshments or no, okay. Well, if, if I brought donuts, okay, let's, and there are donuts in front of you, you might look at them and you might think, okay, I could forego the donuts for the sake of my health or I could eat one or five of them, you know, and what are you doing? This, it's not even a right or wrong type of question. It just gets down to what you value in the moment. Do you value the taste of the donuts? Or do you value getting like Chris Hemsworth abs or something? It's like, what, whatever it is, what do you value? What do you value? So this is what Paul is going to do. He says, you need this in order to suffer. Soul mathematics. So I'm going to kind of Remove the veil, remove the curtain for you to see the glory that is in front of you. And there are three glories. Yes, that was the introduction, but don't worry. All three points are fairly short, okay? <laughs> three glories. <clears throat> the glory of creation, the glory of the resurrection, and the glory of hope. Creation, resurrection, and hope. So first, the glory of creation. How can a Christian suffer? Christians can suffer because they await the glory of creation. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation here means everything, the plants, the animals, the ocean, the mountains, absolutely everything. All of it is awaiting. It's awaiting the sons of God. Eager longing in the Greek comes from the, it's directly transla translated from outstretched neck. So just think of someone who's so excited that they're trying to see, they're trying to see what is going on. 
like a kid at the back of a magic show. You know, he's in the back row. He's like, oh, no. It's like I can't see anything that's going on. Everyone's ooing and aahing. What am I missing? We, all of creation is in the back just trying to see, just trying to get a glimpse of what is going on with what God is doing with the sons of God. Now, why is creation waiting? Verse 20 through 22, it says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So why is it waiting? Because God subjected it to futility after the fall. This is something God did, subjecting it. Now, why would he do that? You know, human sin, it was an, you know, we sinned, Adam and Eve sinned and brought death into the world. But why would God have creation go along with that? Well, it says, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So what God wanted to do is he wanted to take creation and our human condition and have it be a mirror to show us our condition. Just think of all the horrible things. You turn on the news and you see the, all the horrible things that are going on, particularly just natural disasters. It's just hurricanes, tornadoes, mudslides, all those things. It's not the way it's supposed to be. You know, to believe in God is to believe that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. You know, if you take God out of the equation, any sort of objective truth out of the equation, why complain about the, the world? You know, it's, it just is. But if there's a God, there's a standard outside of creation, that means the world is not the way it's supposed to be. So we turn on the news and we see that. Maybe, just maybe, we'll think, maybe I'm not the way I should be. You know, if the world is not the way it should be, maybe there's something in me that needs to change. If the world is corrupted, maybe there's something in me that is corrupted. And God uses the mirror of creation to show us that we need a savior, to show us that we need him. C.S. Lewis famously said that God whispers in our pleasures, he speaks in our conscience, but he yells in our pains. It's a megaphone, that's what he said, it's a megaphone to a deaf world. Our pains speak to us more than really anything, even the pains of creation. In fact, there was a study at the University of Copenhagen that found that when a natural disaster went through a country or went through a region, people's religious observance, going to church and going to God, goes up. There's a direct correlation. And maybe, just maybe, that's why we see there's something wrong. I need God. I need something different. So as a Christian, how can you suffer? Well, you can look to the hope of creation Second, you can look to the hope of the resurrection. Verse 23 says this, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. The text is saying that we, by the Spirit, we received by the Spirit the first fruits. Now, in biblical times, what they would do in, in agricultural Society is they would give the first 10% of the harvest. 
So if you have any experience with harvesting, you know that you don't just take it all at once. You, you have to do it progressively. You know, it's like, so the first 10%, they would immediately set it aside to give to God. And what this would show is, God, we trust you. Because you, you think about it. You give that 10% to God, locusts could come in the next day and just ruin everything. So it's, you're, you're saying, God, we trust you. Here's the 10%, the first fruits. Well, this is directed towards us, meaning we have received the first fruits from God, being the Spirit. God has given us the Spirit. Now, just think of all these things the Spirit does for us. You know, who here has had hope when it seems like there should be no hope? Okay, who, who gave you that hope? The Spirit gave you that hope. It's like it impressed the hope into your heart. Who here has been, you are going towards death, and you've been convicted of sin. I have. Am I the only? Okay, okay, the other people. It's like, who, who convicted you of sin? The Spirit did. And what he's saying is like, that's just, it's just the beginning. The hope that the Spirit brings is just the beginning for you. And you have a hope of the resurrection into the future that God is going to pour out his grace upon grace upon grace on you. An amazing hope. Now, so we eagerly, this says, we eagerly await this. Now, this resurrection of the body, it can mean a lot of things, but it at least means two. At least means two things. It means the resurrection of our physical bodies, that we will receive new bodies. There was one time after my grandmother died, I visited one of her friends, probably her closest friend. They had the same name, Doris. And I visited her, and both her and her husband, their health was declining rapidly. And um, obviously after losing her, her best friend, and, and my grandfather died about a year before that, so very quickly. And I'm visiting her, and I don't really remember anything from the conversation except for one thing. And I'm sitting across, um, and I'm in my early 20s, you know, so anyone above the age of 30 is old, okay? So I'm like, but she, she's, so I'm sitting across, and she starts to quote a verse from memory, and I'm sure it's a verse that many of you have memorized. And it's 2 Corinthians 4.16. She says, therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. And what struck me was not the verse. Like, I knew that verse. I've heard that verse. But every word, she was just clinging on to every word with hope. The hope that someday she would receive the resurrected body. Her outward self is currently present tense decaying but she had a hope in front of her and it will always stick with me and probably progressively so it's like that verse will stick with me but it doesn't just mean the physical body it also means all of our humanness all of our body in in the scriptures doesn't always mean just our physical body it also just means all of who we are so we will receive a resurrected body, but all of us will be resurrected. All of us will be new. All of us will be changed. Just think of all the tension we feel because of sin. It's just this internal tension we feel 
because of sin. You're talking with someone and the insecurities that can come of like, well, what did they think of me? Are they bored in this conversation? I don't know, you know, I don't know if I, I really, how do I compare to this person? Or maybe just in pride of looking down and being conceited and looking down on other people. How, how long is this conversation? Yeah, how is it long? Just all the insecurities that sin creates when you look into the mirror. It's just, isn't it going to be an amazing thing when that's just all gone? There's no tension whatsoever with loving people. There's no like, oh man, this is going to be a long conversation. It's just not, none of that. It's just gone. You just love because you love. Because you have a new heart with new desires. And you're completely changed. That is going to be a glorious, glorious day. And he's saying, you can withdraw any suffering, Christian. Just look. Look, you're going to receive a new body. They can, they can touch your body. Be, you know, people can destroy your flesh, as Jesus said. But they cannot destroy your soul. Amen. And your new soul, even, you'll get an upgrade even with that. So not only do we cling on to the glory of the resurrection, the last one we cling on to is our hope. The glory of hope. This is what it says in verses 24 through 25. It says, For in this we are, were saved. Now hope that is seen is not seen. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now what does it mean when it says, For who hopes in what he sees? Many people think that what this means is that, you know, in a lot of verses like it, that faith is not by sight. That it means that faith is contrary to the evidence in front of you. That faith is contrary to logic or contrary to science or contrary to whatever you see. It's just completely different. That is not what the verse is saying. That is not what it's saying. What it is saying is that who hopes in what they see, meaning hope, true, genuine hope, is based off of what God has said. And typically, what he has said is about something that has happened in the past or something about the future. And you cannot see the past and you cannot see the future. Think of Hebrews 11. And I know many of you know this verse, that faith is the hope. It is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Why is it not seen? Because it either happened in the past that you know by his word that he created everything or it's a conviction about something in the future. In Hebrews 11, the chapter of faith is all about these people of faith. God said something about the future and then they acted in the present based off of what God had said in the future. You cannot see the future. But the hope that we have is based on what God has said about it. So, for example, I want you all to close your eyes just for a second. I'm not going to do anything weird. Just close your eyes just for a second, okay? And I want you to think about yourself 10 years from now, okay? 10 years. Okay, where are you at? How is your health? Are you still living? How are your kids? Are they still following the Lord? Are they in good health? How about your grandkids? How's your savings account? 
Okay, you open your eyes. And I can keep on going. All the different situations. Now, here's the thing. That picture in your mind does not exist. It does not exist. And if you hold it as if it does exist, you will be broken against the rocks of reality. If you treat it like a promise, that of course I'll be in good health in 10 years. Of course my kids will be loving me in 10 years. Of course I'll have all the same friends I'll have in 10 years. If you treat it like that, you'll be dashed across the rocks of reality. But true hope, true biblical hope, is based off of God's promise about the future. The hope of what he has said. And you anchor yourself. You anchor yourself in that hope and it cannot be shaken. It cannot be moved. It is anchored into a reality beyond yourself. Now, everyone, if if you see that this is the definition of hope, this is the definition of faith, every single person has faith. Every single person has faith. If you invest... If you invest in a company or in something that you, if you, if you are worthwhile, you put your money where your mouth is and you invest, what you believe is that investment will pay you back in the future. No one, I'm sure there might be one or two people, but virtually no one says, you know what, I bet I'm going to lose a lot of money on this. Here you go. You know, it's like, no one does that. That's not how investing works. That's not how investing works. It's like, you, you think this is going to pay off in the end. That's why you do it. You could be wrong. A lot of people have been wrong before. But it's like you don't think you're wrong in the moment. That's how faith works. Now, in, in America, most people, I would say probably most people, if not everyone in this room, will ever go through a situation in which you have a life or death situation about whether you're going to follow Jesus. Probably not. God forbid. In some places in the world, that that is a common occurrence. But here, probably not. So the real test is how you live. Not how you die, but how you live. What we try to do is we try to lie to ourselves. We say, yeah, I would, if it really came down to that, I would, I would, I wouldn't disown Christ. I would stand firm. But it's like, you know that's a reality that you'll probably never see. The real test is how do you live? Are you living in a way that would be a complete waste if there was no hope? If you just took God out of the picture, you took his reward out of the picture. Your Hebrews 11.6, that faith is knowing that God is there and believing that he rewards those who seek him. You took the reward out of the picture. Would your life make sense? Would it be a waste? You want to live as if your life would be a waste if you took away God's reward. And if you live that way, if you live that way, any type of suffering, any type of pushback that you receive from the world, any type of loss of relationship, It's worth it. It is worth it. Because Jesus is worth it. And his reward is worth it. 
And you know, I'll just go through anything. I'll go through anything to have that. One last thing. I'm a sucker for war movies. Anybody in, like war movies? Anybody see Saving Private Ryan? Has anybody see Saving Private Ryan? Okay. And you know the scene, the, the famous scene from Saving Private Ryan, if you haven't seen it, is when they're taking the beaches of Normandy. That's like the famous scene. And from uh, what they've said, those who have actually fought in that battle said it's fairly realistic, which is just horrifying if you've seen the movie. You just see uh, everything that's going on. And what they had to do is they had to take that beach, and they thought, if we win this, it will be a beachhead for the rest of the war. We can take France and then eventually get into Germany. And that was the case. That was actually the case. If they would have lost that battle, chances are the Allied forces would not have won the war. At least in the West. They would not have won the war. And it's easy to say, oh yeah, it's definitely worth it. It's worth it to take the beach. It's worth it. But when you're actually in the boat and you're actually seeing all of your best friends get mowed down and you smell the smoke, and you hear the bullets flying. Everything around you says it's not worth it. Everything in front of you saying, don't do it, not worth it, not worth the cost. That is the way it is living as a Christian in this world. The current is going against you. Everything around you saying, don't do it, it's not worth the investment, don't, don't open your mouth. It could really hurt the friendship. You know, hold on to your life. life Tight-fisted, hold on to your life. And God is saying, no, it's worth it. It is worth it. You can press on. You can get out of the boat. You can get onto the beach. Create a beachhead for the victory that is before you. You hold on to the promises. Now, I'm saying this not as someone that, you know, this has been a truth that I've had to, you know, I'll be honest. Can I be honest for a second? <laughs> um, I taught this, uh, a similar message, the same passage, uh, a f about a year before I moved to Rhode Island. And this year, uh, this year and a half of getting started, the church started, and it's been just a roller coaster for our family, for the people that moved out with us and taking care of people, reaching out to people, and uh, I can't wait to share some of the stories of that this evening. But it's been kind of a test for me of like, you know that message you taught to a bunch of, it was to, at a college conference, to all those zealous college students, do you believe it? <laughs> you know, do you, do you, you have all the issues in your current like, neighborhood, do you believe it? You know, it's like three steps forward, two steps back, three steps forward. Do you believe it? And it's been so good, so good for my own heart to be like, you know what? Even the weeks that went into looking for a building that actually didn't work out. That was just one example. It's like all of it, it's just a sacrifice to God and something that he accepts as worship to him. And what I hope is that and all this and is that this week and whatever God has before you, whatever situation that he has for you, that you would see whatever sacrifice it is as worth it for him. Because he is a good God and a good Savior 
and worth everything. And that we can say with that famous hymn, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus.'" Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we get to gather and worship you. You're so good to us. And we want to trust in you. And even if the the temperature turns up, even in in our own country, uh, we just hold on to the hope. We hold on to the hope that we have in you. We pray that you would do some uh, soul surgery, that you would help us to see your value even though everything around us is saying that you're not that valuable. Change us. Amen.